International Security Center is a program here at Notre Dame devoted to research, teaching, and public affairs programming in the area of national security, broadly defined. The Kelly Weiss Lecture Series has been one of the longest standing elements of that third part of our mission. Uh, Colonel Jack Kelly and his wife Gail Weiss are the ultimate Washington, D.C. power couple. Uh, Gail, whom I regard as the brains of the uh, operation, uh, served in our nation's capital for 32 years in a variety of positions in both the executive and legislative branches, including the Office of Economic Development under the Johnson administration before moving to the Hill serving first on the uh, personal staff of Representative Clay of Missouri before moving uh, to serve on the staff of a couple of his committees, education and labor, and then post office and civil service staff. Along the way, she also found time to work for a British member of parliament uh, as well. And I commend to you the really moving tribute that Congressman uh, Clay gave uh, on the, uh, the House of the Floor of Representatives, which was reproduced in the congressional record of October 4th, uh, 2000. Uh, Jack Kelly was commissioned in 1974 through, uh, through Notre Dame's Reserve Officer Training Corps program and served in a variety of positions in the U.S. Army, including commanding a Special Forces unit. Like Gale, he also had a distinguished career in both branches of government, including serving on the staff of uh, Representative Charlie Rangel of New York. Now, you could never tell talking to Jack that he's from New York, so I'll give you an opportunity for him to come up and give us all New York elocution uh, lessons in just a second. Uh, he's currently a partner at the McPherson Group in Washington and serves on many other national organizations, including as chair of the U.S. Advisory Committee on National Cemeteries and Memorials. Now, Gail and Jack are great and long-term supporters of Notre Dame and uh, NDISC. Indeed, uh, they were the first supporters uh, of NDISC, and if you notice um, on this uh, commemorative uh, plaque that we put together for them, we have the Latin phrase, in prima, uh, in recognition of them uh, being first in. Uh, this is, by my count, the fifth Kelly Weiss lecture which has brought to Notre Dame such distinguished figures as Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, General Jack Keane, uh, Director of the National Security Agency, General Keith Alexander, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, uh, and last year, uh, Congressman uh, Lee Hamilton. Um, Jack also regularly schools me in my role as director in the intricacies of inside Beltway politics, remedial education that he constantly reminds me I'm in sore need of and I certainly appreciate. Uh, in addition to today's 
Kelly Weiss lecture. I also want to take this opportunity to publicly thank Gail and Jack uh, for a magnificent endowment gift they've just made, which will in part put the Kelly Weiss lecture series on a permanent footing and also provide support for NDISC undergraduate uh, and graduate uh, students. Um, and Jack and Gail, would you uh, please come up um, and join me? And I'd like to uh, ask the audience uh, to uh, join me in thanking them for all they do for the Notre Dame. Thank you, Mike. So anybody who was a real soldier would always correct the record on one thing. I didn't get commissioned through ROTC. Uh, I earned my commission. Uh, I was a real soldier first and then uh, went to OCS. Um, and while that may be amusing, it, has, it is a distinction that some people do care about. Uh, today it's a, a great honor and to be here. What I would ask everybody, out of courtesy to, uh, to General Hayden, there's going to be plenty of food here. So take a seat, relax, find a little space, and uh, we'll have the decorum that might be nice for, for a good uh, exchange of interface between the, uh, between the general and the people here and the students. We really, really appreciate that. See, an infantry officer always said, sit the heck down. An SF officer quietly convinces you why it's a good idea. Uh, it is a great honor to be here. Uh, I, I really do mean that. Uh, what Mike Desch has done has been incredible. But why we're here today is international security programs. We're in a world today where international security is probably one of the most important things we face. Today there are roughly two million men and women in the armed services and another 800,000 reserve soldiers, close to three million people, who are out there around the world keeping you safe. I know that doesn't sound, you know, we sit here safely right now and we're enjoying food and a speech, we're going to watch a football game. But right now throughout the world, three million Americans are doing something to make sure that you're safe and sound. But besides that three million people, there is another untold number of men and women who serve our nation in the intelligence community whose names and faces you'll never see. They sit in office buildings around the world. They sit in places around the world you don't even know have names. They have offices sometimes with or without windows. They come to work at all hours of the day no matter where they are, driving down highways in Washington or out west and going to work, whose children don't even get to tell their schoolmates what their parents do. And they'll serve for 20 years or 30 years of their life, and they'll quietly go back to where they went, and no one will ever know what they've done. You don't read the headlines about the problems get solved in this world where something happens and an event happens that prevents something happening to you in the safety of your world. And that doesn't happen by accident. 
That happens because of those men and women. It happens because of the intelligence that the end users get to use is developed by people in two different ways. It's developed electronically and humanly through human intelligence and electronic intelligence. They gather the resources, they analyze it, and they present it to their users that make those people safe and make you safe. There are few people in the world who have worked on both sides of that coin, the human and the electronic intelligence world. That person is with us today. That person is General Michael Hayden. General Hayden should not feel at all alone here at Notre Dame. He's an Irish Catholic boy from Pittsburgh, grew up in Allegheny County, married a gal who went to school with him at Duquesne, was uh, taught by the Holy Ghost priest. Then he entered into the Air Force and became a career intelligence officer. He had a love for football. How many people say that they, that they played for the Roonies? <laughs> you know, today's day and age, we don't have a lot of rapport between our uh, cabinet secretaries. They point fingers at each other. There was two cabinet agencies that worked pretty well during the years uh, when, uh, when General Hayden was at uh, the agency because he found a bond with uh, a woman who happened to be the Secretary of State who loved college football. Another Notre Dame alum, and uh, he and Condoleezza Rice used to catch football games together up in uh, Pittsburgh. And that bond is what makes the difference between people in our world. But that's why he's no stranger to here, and with our alums like Rocky Blyer and Jerome Bettis being great Pittsburgh Steeler fans, I'm sure he's welcome here. Uh, Mike Hayden uh, was a career intelligence officer. He served in positions uh, including commander of the Air Intelligence Agency, director of the Joint Command and Control Warfare Center. He served on the staff of the National Security Council. He was a defense attache in Bulgaria, and he was deputy chief of staff for the United Nations and U.S. Command in Korea. Think of those assignments and what they mean today. A young man as a junior officer and as a senior officer went through assignments that today are the very basis of the challenges in the world. He then assumed command and became director of the National Security Agency. And when the creation of the, uh, the director of national intelligence was made, he was the first principal deputy director there. And then assumed the role of director of central intelligence. A role that few people will ever understand but a role that makes our country safe. His awards and decorations include the Distinguished Service Medal, the Defense Superior Service Medal, and the Legion of Merit. He left behind a legacy at the agency when he got to both agencies, at NSA and at the CIA. He said there was one thing that we needed to do. We needed to let people take a look at what we're all about. And what he did was he changed some of the rules at the publication review board, so that for the first time in many years, people got to read about the work that those people do. It's my honor, my privilege, on behalf of the University of Notre Dame and the International Security Center to welcome, and I ask you that you join me in a hearty welcome to General Michael Hayden. Thank you. Okay, good. Thank you.
Thank you. So, let me, um, thanks. So to, um, to follow up on what Jack said and to make sure I establish my bona fides in front of this audience, I was with Jerome Bettis last weekend and Rocky Blyer the weekend before that. <laughs> and the uh, reference to uh, playing for the Roonies, I was uh, Dan Rooney's quarterback in the Catholic grade school league in Pittsburgh in the sixth, <laughs> seventh, and eighth grade. So when you're thinking of Rooney football and Rooney quarterbacks, Hayden, Roethlisberger, Roethlisberger, Hayden, it's all kind of the same. Uh, thanks for the chance to come chat. You can see I've overprepared, all right? I'm not gonna read a speech to you, but I, but I do wanna talk a little bit about the American intelligence community. Um, the the uh, headline out there was kind of challenges for American intelligence in a changing world, all right? And if we wanna talk specifically about a particular problem, the uh, fun-loving Kim family of North Korea, um, jump in in the Q&A and we can go to any particular point on Earth. But I wanna to talk to you about the craft of intelligence, how it's conducted in a free society, and frankly, where some of the high stress points are between an institution that relies for its success on power and secrecy and exists inside of a political culture that distrusts only two things, power and secrecy, okay? So I've got four or five main points I wanna hit and then we can get into a generalized discussion. First point, I'm gonna echo some of the things Jack said. We're actually not bad at this, all right? We, we are the, uh, in fact, we're the envy of the world in terms of, of intelligence. Now part of that is we're rich and we throw a lot of resources at this. Let me give you the ballpark numbers. 100,000 people, $51 billion a year. And that's what's spent on national intelligence. I'm not even going down to the Marine Radio Battalion, all right? National intelligence, $100,000, $100,000 people, $50 billion a year. I was on Fox News during one of those kerfuffles with Snowden and revelations and so on. <clears throat> and I'm going up there, actually what I thought was just to be a calm discussion to kind of say, let me, let me try to explain what we're doing. And that, that day broke a story that alleged that, that NSA might, might be going into the shrink wrap packages being sent overseas and kind of going into the back door and making them more useful for American safety than they would otherwise have been, all right? These uh, technology devices. And I think it was John Roberts doing the interview. I mean, he was just breathless. Oh, and they're going doing that, and you're doing that? Oh, my, oh, oh, oh. General, what are we to think? And my answer was, oh, you ought to think you're getting something for $50 billion a year. <laughs> okay. um, I, um, I became director of CIA in late spring 2006. And if you recall, that, that was the summer of the last mass casualty plot attempt against the United States. It was the uh, wide body plot coming out of Great Britain from a group, actually several dozen uh, British citizens of Pakistani descent. It's a reason you can't take more than three ounces of liquid through the TSA checkpoint because the weapon was going to be <clears throat> an explosive made in the bathtub that they were then gonna put into sports bottles and, and carry aboard the, and then, then ignite it, detonate it, well, with batteries drawn from cameras, all right? So uh, a complex plot. 
Uh, I became director in May of 2006. We were all over that plot. It, it, was, it was totally penetrated. And, and the British deserve a great deal of credit for it, that the American services were, were really strong, strong contributors. In fact, the only argument we had with our British friends was, when are you going to arrest these guys? And the, and the British, being that this was a domestic problem for them, wanted to let this run as long as possible to build up physical evidence for what would eventually be, be a court case. And, and the British aren't allowed to use uh, intercepts in court. All right, uh, phone taps are not permissible. And you can imagine an awful lot of what we knew about this came from agencies like the National Security Agency. So there were intercepted communications. So the British wanted the plot to run as far as possible. We were saying they've already, they've already bought the hydrogen peroxide, which is what you use to mix up the, the explosive in your bathtub. It, it finally was broken up in August of, of, of 2006. I'm sitting in my office. <clears throat> and uh, a young officer came, I could, I could hear a little commotion outside, and a young officer clearly was wanting to see the director. And my, my executive assistant, uh, Mary Jane, came in and said, I've got a young guy, yeah, yeah, send him in. And he came in, and he had a model, all right, uh, a model of a United Airlines aircraft, all right? And he said, this is from my brother, he flies London to Kennedy. He doesn't know what you guys did, but he's very grateful, and he, and he put it down, okay? So we're not bad. We're not, we're not perfect. This is hard. I was, um, early in my time as director at CIA, I was downtown talking to a group of people that I've learned since I've left government to call high net worth individuals, okay? <clears throat> and uh, a bunch of uh, venture capitalists, and the, the, so they wanted the director to do what my army buddies call the big hand little map once over the world, you know? What should we be thinking about? And right before I launched into it, one of the folks, his name you'd know immediately if I mentioned it, but I, but I won't. One of the folks said, well, before you go, General, before you start, on a scale of zero to 10, how would you rank CIA analysis? And I thought, like I said, I won't mention his name, but I said, well, Jamie, okay. <laughs> You, you got to understand, we don't do 8, 9, or 10. If you can get it to 8, 9, or 10, they're asking the Department of Agriculture about the question. They're not asking us. All right? So I just want to kind of scope uh, what it is your intelligence services do for you. So that's, that's one. All right? We're not bad. All right? You, you, you're, you're getting value for dollar. Now, you should lean on us to get more value for dollar. But... We're not bad. Okay, the second point I want to make is, as good as I think we are, uh, we, we suffer under some limitations. And, and one of the limitations that your intelligence services operate under is that we've been at war for 16 years. And when you are at war at 16 year, for 16 years, guess what? Guess, guess what happens to your focus? Guess what happens to your investment? Guess what happens to your psychic and physical energy? It, it gets pulled more and more and more to the battlefield. And, and organizations, even 100,000 people, organizations have limited psychic and physical energy. And the more we are pulled to the battlefield, the less we're gonna do, we're gonna do some other things. And that's not me complaining, I did that, all right? I started a cell at NSA called the GeoCell. 
in, in which we develop techniques that through the patterns of call from a phone, in terms of who the phone called, and the ability for us to geolocate the phone within one or two meters, we could actually use that information to say, go ahead, take the shot. All right, now that's a good thing in, in, I mean, in, in, a, in, in terms of what it is you want us to do in keeping us safe, but you realize how hard that is and how much energy that, that draws in at the expense of some other things you might be doing. So Dave Petraeus, uh, Army four-star, was one of my successors at CIA. Uh, Dave, when he was nominated, but before he had his confirmation hearing, was making the rounds of all the former living directors. And you know, he's a very meticulous man, comes in with his notebook, starts asking questions and so on. So he came to my house in McLean. He and Holly came with, my wife Janina and I were there. Coffee, coffee cake, kitchen table, just, just plain discussions. And we're all done, and we're about ready to go, and the four of us are walking towards the front door, <clears throat> and I do that uh, kind of classic Washington pull aside, you know, we just kind of grab the guy and delay, and so we let the ladies go out to the front porch. Uh, some of you, I can see some of you are old enough, it's, it's kind of the Columbo technique, you know? You, you think you're done, you go, oh yeah, wait, wait, I got one more question in here. <laughs> okay. David, one more thing, a private moment. And what I said to Dave was, Dave, you have to, CIA has never looked more like OSS than it does right now. OSS, Office of Strategic Services, Wild Bill Donovan, World War II, direct action arm. David, CIA has never looked more like OSS than it does right now. And that's good, and by the way, I'm not blaming anybody. I did it too, Leon did it, George did it. You, know, you got American teenagers in harm's way, guess what we're gonna go do? We're gonna go try to keep them safe. But David, you gotta remember, you're not taking over OSS. You are taking over America's global espionage service. And you're gonna to have to struggle every day to remind yourself and the institution that it's not OSS, that it's got this much, much broader responsibility. And that, no, I'm, I'm saying it as director of CIA, right? But that applies to the whole, the whole American uh, intelligence enterprise. I, I, was, I was at CIA in August of 2008, all right? Uh, that was when the Russians invaded Georgia. Okay. That Georgia, not... Okay. That other one comes later, no. <laughs> um, and I got a phone call from Steve Hadley, the National Security Advisor, and he said, Mike, the red switch lights up. Steve, yes. Uh, Misha Saakashvili just called me president of Georgia. Um, if, he, if he were here talking, you'd think he was American, American educated, friend of the United States, really good guy. Sakai really calls and says, the Russians are invading. Um, it's a complicated story. Misha may have thrown the first punch, all right? And the Russians responded. And anyway, the question he has is, are they coming to Tbilisi? Are they coming to the capital? All right, now, in the event, they did not. They came down to a town called Shkinvali, and they hooked right, and they, they, just, they just hived off two Russian-speaking provinces, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, but we don't know, all right? So Steve says, Mike, president of Georgia just called. He wants to know, are the Russians coming to his capital? So I gave him the, <clears throat> the, the, the strong-willed uh, intelligence officer response. 
I'll get back to you. <laughs> so I hung up on Steve and went to my outer office and said, Mary Jane, Mary, my executive assistants, get my Georgia people up here right away. And they started going through the, the cardboard Rolodex and going through the electronic Rolodex and they're sending messages and they're you know, on the phone. And I turned over here towards my chief of staff and said, we got Georgia people, right? <laughs> now, we did and they were great, but you get the point, all right? They, they weren't regulars in my office, okay? Um, again, so you just need to understand that this, this, this war has created an emphasis, an emphasis, an emphasis you will agree with, but it's not free. And it, it does leave some space out there that we aren't doing some of the other things we would have done had it not been consumed by the conflict. Okay, so that's, so we're not bad. We're more tactical than we probably ought to be over the long term more tactical, more operational, more present tense at the, at, at, the, at the expense of being strategic, nuanced, long-term. All right, third point I want to make is, is um, there's, a, there's a bit of a wiggle in our social contract with you. Now, I already told you we, we sit a little uncomfortably inside American political culture because we're powerful and secretive and that's not who we are, right? Uh, you all familiar with the Snowden revelations and all those stories going out? The first story out the door was something called the 215 program. Now, so I think yes, some are not, and some of the students are familiar with it. It's a metadata program. It's not what you said. It's just the fact a call was made. Yeah. Who called whom, when, how long? Metadata. Fact of call, <clears throat> not content of call. NSA had been acquiring... Um, in essence, your phone bills since October 2001, and creating a massive database with the, with the purpose being that if we rolled up a, a, a Al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen and, and we grabbed a phone that we had never seen before and go, whoa, he's a bad man, this is his phone, I wonder if this phone has ever called the United States of America. And you, you could get go to this gajillion record database and say, hey, this number here, does it ever show up in here? And with very powerful algorithms, it says yes or no. If it says yes, you, see, you know, metaphorically, this number in the Bronx goes, well, yeah, he calls me every Thursday. And then we could say, yeah, well, then who do you call? All right, that, that was the program. I started it, all right? I did it under President Bush's authorization. It was the kind of thing that President Obama campaigned against. And once he was elected president and had a responsibility for your safety, found that it was a pretty damn good program. <laughs> and he kept it, and it rolled all the way forward. And it was one of the ones that Snowden made public. All right? Um, it's an explainable program. And when I'm all done, there's a lot more fine print. Uh, some of the audience will go, oh, I got no problem with that. Some will go, well, Hayden, you're, you seem to be a nice guy, but I don't want you doing that. I mean, there, there'll be an honest spread, all right? NSA handled the revelation horribly, all right, once it got out there. Now, part of that, frankly, was, I, I think, a reluctance on the part of the Obama administration to argue against the American privacy lobby, all right? That's, that's an unnatural act for a Democrat president. Okay? The same way it's an unnatural act for a Republican president to argue against the NRA. I mean, you know, it's just, 
it's, it's kind of where you are in the political spectrum. So I, I don't think the agency did as much as it could have done to explain itself. But there is another story. This is getting to this point about where we sit. I think the agency had the instinct that this, this, is, this is a two or three day story and this is going away. And I'll tell you why. Because we're doing this just right. We're doing it just the way you all said we have to do this edgy stuff. In the 1970s, there were some real and alleged scandals. There were some laws passed. We created an oversight structure for the American intelligence community. Generally, espionage is controlled by the executive. By the way, in Europe, it's still controlled by the executive, even in countries you and I believe to be democracies. But in America, we, 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 we shifted control of American espionage beyond the executive to the Congress. If I say the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee, okay, they oversee it. And then for some questions, we actually put espionage in the control of American courts in the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court. And there, there's no other Western democracy that does it that way. That's how we do it. And what NSA was thinking was, all right, we're, we're, we got, we're gonna have a bad long weekend here, but by Monday, people are gonna understand that what we're doing has been approved by not just one, but two very different presidents. It has been legislated by Congress. It is overseen by the intelligence committees in the House and Senate, both of whom were kind of big fans, okay? And oh yeah, every 60 days, the FISA court takes a look at it and says, good to go. And so the NSA assumption was once people begin to you know, settle down here and begin to realize, I mean, they may have some questions, but they'll understand this was really carefully done. The line I use is that we just ran the, the, the Madisonian trifecta. Okay, I got the executive, I got the legislative, I got your judicial, check, check, check. And it, despite what I just told you, the uproar over this didn't go away. And I don't mean the uproar from the wingnuts over here on the right and on the left. I mean a lot of people like the people in the room here, solid citizens trying to do the right thing, not extreme, they were concerned. And here's, here's the major muscle movement that I wanted to share with you. For a lot of good Americans, what I just told you, Congress, courts, president, for a lot of good Americans, they were now saying, that no longer, I know what you're trying to do, but that no longer constitutes, as far as I'm concerned, consent of the governed. It's consent of the governors, but not consent of the governed. In other words, you may have told them, but you didn't tell me. That's a big deal. Okay, to, to review, we had this structure set up. We all thought it was good. And we all thought there was a public consensus under the structure that you were willing to outsource your oversight and approval for American espionage to these parts of the American government. And over the last several years, you're that substructure of, of approval has drifted along with your distrust of just about all major institutions. And it turned out that this was a bigger problem for what I would call the normally supportive Americans than the agency ever thought it was because that had changed. Now what, that, what does that mean? It means my old guys are gonna have to tell you more of what they're doing. 
And don't kid yourself, that's, that's going to shave points off the final score. All right? That, that will make the institution less effective. That's what I tell you. What I tell them is, tough, get over it. These people aren't going to let you do it unless they know more about it. And so that is, you know, we're talking about intelligence in the modern era. That is a big deal. That's why, that's why you're seeing a whole be bunch of people like me and Michael Morrell and John McLaughlin and Jeremy Bash and Phil Mudd and Jim Clapper on TV trying to say what we can so that people better understand. So that's a, kind of the third major point I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to make. A fourth major point is intelligence. What exactly is that? I mean, the historical sense of the intel guy is he goes into the meeting and he grabs a policymaker and he tells the policymaker what he needs to know to make a better informed decision. And you get the intel guy to do it because most of the things that Jack needs to know to decide have to be stolen. Okay? They're not readily available. It requires espionage to listen to a communication to which you are not intended to be a recipient or to suborn someone to tell you something about an organization to which they belong and which thinks deserves his loyalty. I mean, that's what espionage is. We're, we're stealing data not otherwise available. And that's why the intel guy, Jack, you've been in the meetings, the intel guy talks first. And you go into the meeting and it says, okay, intel, what do you got? And intel goes first because the got used to exclusively have to, be, it, it always had to be stolen because that's where it was. We don't live in that world anymore. Most of what Jack needs to make decisions, particularly if he's at a senior policy level, most of it doesn't have to be stolen anymore. In, a, in an interconnected, globalized, information-based world, most of the stuff that he needs to know is available if you are just willing to go harvest it. Now, trust me, I'm not telling you to take the, take the $51 billion away, all right? or come grab your 100,000 kids that we're using in the, net, in, the, in the system and take them home. We still have to steal stuff. But I'm just trying to tell you, in an information-based age, all right, if intelligence thinks all it is is the teller of secrets, it's going to lose its pride of place. Intelligence has to reimagine itself as the teller of the story rather than just the Tower of Secrets. I'm sorry, that's obscure, all right? So we had this Tunisian fruit merchant that set himself on fire about four years ago, okay? Four weeks later, there were a million people in Tahrir Square overthrowing the government of Hosni Mubarak, okay? There is no secret that we could have stolen that would have allowed us to run into President Obama and say, hey boss, stand by, this is going to happen. Uh, Omar Suleiman was the head of the Egyptian service. Uh, Omar's a great guy. He, Omar has passed. Um, but he was our interlocutor with the Palestinians. And we could not have had a better, uh, a better friend in counterterrorism efforts. I used to I, I go to Cairo and visit with Omar. We'd be in the back, back part of a ship going up and down the Nile. And he would just be telling me all 
what he thought about. I mean, it was, he's worth your time. Omar was great. There was no document in Omar's lower right-hand desk drawer that if we had but purloined that document would have given us the ability to predict the Arab awakening after the immolation, the self-immolation of the Tunisian fruit merchant. No way. Now, should we have been able to predict that? Maybe, but not from information we had to steal. We, it, it would largely have had to have come from um, a broad, deep, civilizational, cultural, historical understanding of what was going on in the Arab world at that, at that time. Now, I, I know what you're trying to do here with the center, so let me, let me give, give you something that actually might even feel like a little infomercial for, for the center in what it is they're doing here, but to kind of kick the podium about in today's, it, it's always been true, but it's really true now, okay? It's not the little specks of data that you might steal. It's not the powerful algorithm that will disambiguate oceans of information you're able to suck up through one access or another, <clears throat> but it does, success very often relies on something deeper, something, dare I say, liberal artsy, okay? As, as opposed to just technical. So I was the J2 for US forces in Europe. All right, um, and this is in the mid-90s. J2 is the head of intelligence for US forces. It's the mid-90s, the war was the war in the Balkans. All right, it was, it was Croatia, it's particularly Bosnia. And I, just, I had this young Navy lieutenant who was briefing the four-star uh, deputy commander of all US forces in Europe, Chuck Boyd, Air Force, uh, Air Force uh, general officer. And he's, he's briefing the fighting around a town called Mostar which is south of Sarajevo along the Naretva River. And, and Mostar is, is kind of on a dividing line between Croats and, and Muslims, all right? So he's briefing the fighting, and the general says, well, well gone, gone too fast. Who's engaged here? He says, oh, sir, it's the Croats and the Muslims. The Serbs have already been ethnically cleansed. They used to live up in the, in the, hill, in the hills here. They're gone, okay? It's Croats and Muslims, fine. Uh, who's on the attack? Who's taking the fight to whom? Oh, sir, all Croats. The, Cro the Croats are fighting. They have the upper hand? Yes, they have the upper hand. How far are they going? Sir, they're going to go down right here to the middle of town to the Naretva River. Oh, okay. Is that a good defensible line? And, and the lieutenant goes, yes, sir. The bank, banks of the river drop off there about 10 or 15 meters. It's, it's a very defensible line. All right, good, son. Thank you. But, sir, that's not why they'll go there and stop. And the four-star goes, all right, why? God is my judge. The kid says, because in the great schism of Christendom in the 11th century, the dividing line between Catholicism and Orthodoxy was the Naretva River. The Croats are Catholics. They're loyal to Rome. They'll go to the Naretva, and they'll stop. And they did. So what, what, what I'm, I'm describing to you is, is, is we in intelligence, if we just think we're the teller of secrets, we're going to be, we're going to be, I didn't do anything. We're going to be telling an incomplete story. And it will be, it will be less and less complete as we go forward because so much else is, is available, is available out there. Okay. Uh, one or two more points and then we'll um, take some questions. 
You all followed the election thing, right? <laughs> there is always a tension. There's always a tension between the, the, the intel person and the policy person. Or more broadly, there's always a tension between the intel person and the decision maker. And, you know, that could be a battalion commander in a canvas-covered sand, uh, sand floor talk, tactical operations center. But there's tension between the intel and the decision maker. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step this up, and we're just going to go to the Oval Office. There's a natural tension between the intel briefer and, and the president. All right? Let me, let me just, permanent, doesn't, doesn't rely on the personality. The permanent tension is they both have to get into the same room. And there's kind of got to be a little bit of a mind meld in the room. In other words, the intel person's got to get in the head of the president. But they come into the room through different doors. The intel person's door is, is marked facts. Okay? The president's door is marked vision, the one you voted for, right? Fact, vision. Intel, world as it is. Policymaker, president, world as we want it to be. Fact, vision, as is, want to be. Inherently inductive. Data, data, data. Evidence, evidence, evidence. General conclusions. Inherently deductive. First principles. Again, the ones you voted for. And how do I apply them to a specific circumstance? Fact, vision, as is, want to be. Inductive, deductive. Inherently pessimistic. Okay, comes just naturally with the turf. Bob Gates, before he became SecDef, was DCI, and, and, and Secretary Gates used to say, when a CIA analyst stopped to smell the flowers, she then looked around for the hearse. Okay? <laughs> pessimistic, optimistic. Fact, vision, as is, want to be inductive, deductive, pessimistic, optimistic. And the challenge for intelligence is to get into the head, hunt down this other person, in that room, even if they're hiding, okay, hunt them down and get in their head without breaking the tether to the door because that's your only ticket. You have no right to be in the room unless you're the fact-based, world-as-it-is, pessimistic, inductive person. So that is always, that is always a tension. It was probably the easiest in all of history for Bush 41 because he used to come into the room through the other door. He was DCI. Uh, it probably would have been a fairly light lift for a President Hillary Clinton because she had, she had had the treatment for four years as Secretary of State. So I can, I can picture the first briefing for President Clinton along the lines of, <clears throat> so where were we? And, and then just picking it up. We always knew that if Donald Trump were to be elected president, this thing here, was going to be a little heavier lift than average. Because all this stuff over here, he got extra doses from the creator. I mean, he is, he is intuitive. He's got almost this preternatural confidence in his own a priori narrative of how the world works. And we're coming in here with evidence, fact-based syllogisms. All right? So we, we knew this was always going to be hard. It is an American tragedy that the first time my guys had to meet him and begin to climb that mountain, which I told you exists for everybody, the first time my guys had to meet him and climb that mountain, 
Uh, it was over an issue that other Americans, not the Intel guys, but other Americans were using to challenge Donald Trump's legitimacy to be the president of the United States. It was on the question of Russian interference in the American election, all of which is true, but was not designed in any way to challenge the fact that he is indeed the elected president. That is a perfect storm and has created a great deal, a, a great deal of turbulence now between my community and, and the president's. Uh, there, that's that circle. There's a wider circle. Uh, you know, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016, post-truth, defined as decision-making based upon emotions, feelings, and preference rather than objective reality. And that, is, that is a broader, it's a broad enough condition that it was the damn word of the year, all right? And it is a condition that I think gets frequently exhibited even at the highest levels of our government. And so if, if you've got decision-making over here based upon preference, emotion, and I'm coming into the room with what I hope is an evidence-based, fact-based narrative, do you see the challenge that Mike Pompeo and Senator Coates have in trying to get into the head of this president who just makes decisions in, in, in a different way than almost all of, his, all of his predecessors had made them. So you've got an awful lot going on in the intelligence community. Remember where I began. We're not bad at this, okay? We are a safer country because of what all these folks are doing. Um, but there are, there are really tectonic issues out there in terms of our relationship to you, our relationship to American decision-making, our focus in terms of being tactically driven and so on, that affect how you should think about us. And so I, I uh, oh yeah, and that transparency thing. So here you've got a former director of this and that, talking about 50 minutes from the heart on what's really going on on the inside of your intelligence community. Take that as an invitation to reflect on these issues, to, to read about these issues, and then finally to make your views on these issues known. We follow your lead. You tell us where the lines are. We'll always play inside them, but you're the ones who are responsible for drawing them. And with that, I'll stop and thank Mike's going to MC some questions. Do you want to recognize people and then I'll give them the microphone? Sure, that's fine. Thank you very much, uh, General Hayden. Uh, the generals uh, graciously agreed to uh, answer questions. Please keep in mind that we have a big room, and it's a beautiful room, but the acoustics are not optimal. So I'm gonna, when the general recognizes you, uh, come around with the, uh, with the microphone, and I think we have our first recognition. We have, we have, we have a bias towards students here, so. Thank you very much, General. Very informative and expert talk. We're all very grateful. Thank you. You mentioned coming from the world of details, facts, and you're better than anyone in analyzing policy today. President Trump has indicated that he'd really like to rely on the CIA and covert actions in Afghanistan and elsewhere as part of his broader strategy. Can you tell us objectively, is this within the capabilities of the CIA? Is this effective to rely on the CIA in this manner? Is it possible? Yeah. 
So let me just talk a little bit about covert action. You know, this is not my avoiding your question, but it requires a little context, and then I'll take a shot at the end. CIA does covert action. For those of you who have real lives and don't have to focus on this much, uh, the definition of covert action is activity designed to influence foreign political, military, or economic events in which it is intended that the hand of the United States government be hidden. All right, hence the covert action, right? Uh, number one, let me tell you who is almost never a fan of covert action, the Central Intelligence Agency. I mean, I, I was there three years, we, we recommended one, and it was turned down. By and large, covert action comes out of those long meetings about Darfur or, or South Sudan or, you know, and you're there for, Jack, the intel guy gets to tee it up, hey, it's really bad, and you lay it out. And then the power ministries, state, defense, chairman of Joint Chiefs, they talk it all through. These are really hard problems. Meeting's almost over. They got bupkis, all right? They don't know what to do. And at the end of it, they turn down the end of the table and say, hey, what about you guys? <laughs> is there something you guys at Langley might be able to do? That is generally the evolution of covert action, all right? I mean, an impulse to act without any good options to act on. And then they turn to us. So we are always very, very suspicious. I mean, not of, not of our masters, not of our political masters, but, you know, there's a reason these guys want to keep it covert, right? I mean, it means, it, it means operationally, ethically, and legally, it's probably edgy. And so and it's, if you're going to be the agent, well, you're going, to, you're going to ring this out really, really carefully. So that's kind of the, the broad background with covert action. Uh, I, I did several. Um, uh, did it conscientiously, try to reflect my values, the agency's values, your values. Uh, by and large, we were generally successful. Some of them, when, be when they became public, were controversial. Others have not yet become public. When they are, they will be controversial, because after all, that's why you did it covertly to begin with. President Trump has a tendency towards action at the expense of reflection. Okay. You didn't know that, right? <laughs> and, and so if I'm director, all right, I'm, I'm, a, I'm going into the meeting understanding that this is a man, I mean, that's, that's, that's a description, that's not a criticism. Here is a man who likes to get to the do. I would offer you the view that his predecessor, it was hard to get him to the do, okay? He liked to reflect almost too much, okay? President Trump's on the other side. So if I'm the director, all right, I'm recognizing that characteristic and therefore trying not to be reflexively enthusiastic about every suggestion and, and trying to say, well, let, my, let me have my guys look at that, Mr. President. Okay, on the surface, and then you just kind of get off stage with something. Um, covert actions sometimes are very useful. All right, covert actions sometimes are the only choice you have between war and doing nothing. I would never do covert action. Well, here, let me, let me end it this way. If I'm sitting across the table from a president and he's saying, I want you to go do this, Mike, and I've had that conversation, 
okay? I'm looking for three things across the table. Number one, is this man honest and does he broadly, broadly share my values and the values of my nation? One. Number two, is what he's asking me to do part of a broader coherent strategic plan or is this something instead of a broad coherent strategic plan? And then number three, will he have my back when this hits the fan because this is gonna hit the fan? Those are the three things I'd ask. And I, I would suspect that's what Mike Pompeo is gonna ask. Yes, sir, well here. And there's one behind you here, Mike. General, thank you very much. I am inquisitive about the question that you kind of prompted when you first started about uh, our friend in North Korea. If oh, yeah. you would uh, like to address that. Sure. Um, yeah, it's the problem from hell. There, there are no good solutions. Um, he's not crazy. He's ruthlessly calculating. And he's calculating that neither he nor his regime will survive if they give up weapons. There you go. Yeah, he'd, be, he'd be crazy to give up his weapons. He's not crazy. He's seen the movie, the one, you know, the premiere we, we, we organized, Muammar Gaddafi. He, he saw the other, the second bill on the thing, Saddam Hussein. Even looked at the selected short subject, Ukraine. Remember, Russians gave Ukraine permanent territorial guarantees in return for returning the Soviet weapons to Mother Russia. And of course, so, so his decision matrix is, if I don't have these, that happens, that's what happens to me. Now we've got a president who says, I cannot let him have these. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm concerned. Can we take one? Yeah, yeah, do that. And we got some over here. Thank you. Um, Harry Truman said that the, uh, brought the CIA into existence. By 1960, he said it was a rogue operation. Uh, the Church Committee, 1976, investigated all of the operations that the CIA was involved in illegally during the Vietnam War. Now, you can say that maybe they're being proactive, but if this is the case, I'd like your analysis of what happened at 9-11. We had the biggest intelligence failure in United States history. CIA is in charge of this. Was it incompetence or was 9-11 an inside job? I, I can take care of that last part easy. No, it wasn't an inside job. So to begin at the beginning, um, yeah, I mean, remember, powerful and secretive inside a broader political culture. Uh, and, and, and some of the things you suggested uh, actually brought forward the, the oversight regime now that includes the parliament, I'm, I'm using that term intentionally, all right, and the courts, because even, even our British friends don't do that. Right? The French don't do that. And so the answer to what were alleged and real abuses, and, and there were abuses and there were illegalities, in many cases it, they weren't so much illegal as those, there was no standing law. All right, that actually drew lines. And, but we had the reforms and shared oversight of, again, for the reasons you described, the shortcomings you described, shared oversight no longer just within the executive, but in the legislative 
and judicial branches too. So that was the American kind of secret sauce to, to, prevent, to prevent that from happening. 9-11, um, uh, look, George Tenet was running around town with his hair on fire for the entire summer of, of 2001 saying the system's blinking red, the system's blinking red, the system's blinking red. Right? He, we had multiple warnings of imminent major Al-Qaeda attacks, none of which suggested four airplanes into, into tall buildings on September 11th. It was just the broad, we know something's happening. And, and so in a little bit of defense for the Bush administration, uh, what is it we would have had him do in August? All right? Since all we could tell him was something's coming. Okay? And, and so the answer I think most of us give is, is that, and if you can, you can do the forensics on this 9-11 and say, oh, well, if, if we'd have made that phone call and connected that dot there, or if we'd have shared that tidbit with the Bureau, or if the Bureau would have interviewed that guy in Minnesota who had the laptop but he couldn't get the corridor. I mean, you can find all sorts of things that would have amped up only the likelihood, not the certitude the likelihood that you may have been able to put the tactical warning together, we had the strategic warning, all right? You can do that in retrospect. But I think the view of folks like me is even if you stop that 9-11, a 9-11 was going to happen. And, and it, it was largely because of the way we, the 300 million we, were structured, all right? I mean, for example, Y'all put up with an awful lot flying on airplanes today in order to get through TSA. There is no way a government would have demanded and you would have accepted what TSA does today pre-9-11. We just would not have digested that as a free people. I, I find it hard now, post-9-11. Um, the structure we had to try to preserve our liberty and our security was to create a gap saying the intel guys work over here, the law enforcement people work over here. We, we go after foreigners here with kind of bare knuckles. We, we wear gloves going after American citizens. Foreign, domestic, intelligence, law enforcement. And we, that's the way we were structured. And what happened on 9-11 was that those 19 guys kind of just drove through that gap I just described for you, where we had a foreign attack no question, foreign attack mounted within the United States of America. And so what we did after 9-11 was to try to stitch up that gap between foreign and domestic. Right? The logic should be clear. But the approval wasn't unanimous or automatic. That's the Patriot Act. <laughs> okay? That's the terrorist surveillance program. That's stellar wind. That's all your metadata sitting up at Fort Meade. Even post 9-11, these were controversial programs that, that we still, still argue about. But the sum total of all those, and, and this is important, and the fact that we stopped playing inside our own goal mouth and started kicking the ball way down the field and getting into the other side's defensive zone and began, frankly, a ruthless targeted killing program against the Al-Qaeda leadership in South Asia. All of that shifted this all over. But we can't do any of that. You won't let us do any of that. 
just on somebody's briefing that something bad might happen in the future. We only get to that point, and with great controversy, do we get to that point only after the attack took place. So I, the um, 2006 wide-body hydrogen peroxide, that, that's the last mass casualty attack anybody's planned against us. And, and our sense is that's, that's just not going to happen. And never is a long time. And Intel guys don't like to say words like never. But the slow-moving, multi-actor, multi-thread, mass casualty attack against the iconic target, we're all over that. So what do we suffer? We suffer Chattanooga, we suffer Orlando, we suffer San Bernardino, but, but not that. So, yep. Thank you for your question. Who's got a mic? Yes, sir. Hi, thank you very much. To go back to Korea, um, you said that he was rational. Does that also mean that you assess that he is deterrable? And how do you make such a judgment about other people's psychology and mentality? Second thing, if we do go to war with them, how confident are we that we can hit them, what we need to do in light of, say, the Scud hunt or the hunt for bin Laden, which weren't exactly yeah. successful? And third, how likely can we detect a potential export of a nuclear weapon to the port of Los Angeles? Thank you. Okay. So What was number one? Sorry, what was the first question? First one, how do you assess someone's rationale? Oh, yeah, rationality. So, so look, so you've got General McMaster out there last week, and I watched this stuff very carefully. And, and HR said, we will, not, we will not accept an accept and deter strategy. All right? So that's a, that's a big deal. Well, I read that line a couple of times. It is not acceptable for us to allow him to have the capability, and then we will deal with the capability by deterring him and, frankly, defending you know, ballistic missile defense and so on. HR said that is not the president's policy. We're not going to do that. That's, that's, I mean, you're asking me to do the math? The only way to do that is to go to work. Because I, 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 I don't think you talk him off the ledge for reasons I, I described. So that's, that's one. Um, so, so then the question becomes, if you go kind of where I'm leaning, and I'll, actually a lot of people are leaning, which is if you, a lot of people are thinking it will be more dangerous to try to stop him from getting to that place than it would be for us to simply deal with him in that place. Okay? That's an arguable proposition, but you understand the parameters. All right. If you accept him in that place, now you're deterring and defending. So what do you do? I think we can do that. I think we've got experience. I think we know enough about his survival instincts that we can create the math that he is, would be very reluctant to do that, that sort of thing. By the way, it's going to mean a lot of money. We're going to have to really, really amp up ballistic missile defenses, not just in the region, but in the Pacific Northwest and in Alaska. That's going to be, you know, because this is going to be a limited size force. I mean, he, can't, he can't flood the zone on us. He can't overwhelm defenses. And so if you, if you can be really good against the one-off or the two-off or the three-off, you, you've, probably, you've probably done well. Um, what a war looks like. It looks like World War I. All right? Uh, if, if war starts in the Korean Peninsula, we win. But it's really bloody. And there are probably hundreds of thousands of casualties in the first hours. Okay? Uh, how many have been to D.C.? Flown into D.C.? Yeah, okay. Um, the South Korean president's residence is called the Blue House. Okay. Dulles 
the Blue House is closer to the North Korean army than the White House is to Dulles Airport. I have two tours in Korea. My second one was in Seoul. Uh, Yongsan Garrison near Namsan Mountain used to stretch my legs out and rest them on my bag with my Kevlar and my chem gear. I was in my office within range of multiple North Korean artillery pieces. Seoul, Seoul per se is 12 million, greater Seoul area is 24 million people within range of North Korean artillery. So this is really a, I mean, there's nobody in my background, I think, who thinks, oh yeah, let's just go, let's just go settle this. I think the more you know, the more you think, this is not something we, this is not a place we want to end up. So, okay. Yes. Thanks again, General, for coming today. Uh, Two-part question. So one, there, I've read some views that we got SIGINT heavy over, over this past decade or, or more versus human. So do you have a view on that and where are we today? Uh, and then on a, maybe a different note for the students here, um, if there was a desire to serve in the intelligence community, what would you study, given sure. what you talked about Thank earlier? You. So the, the SIGINT human thing, SIGINT, signals intelligence, technical stuff, all right? Human, human intelligence, human sources. Now in the modern world, it, it, they begin to blend. I mean, just like just like your digital personality be begins to blend with your actual personality, right? In, in intelligence, it's a little harder to distinguish between the, between the two enterprises. We Americans instinctively trend technology, okay? Just Americans, not CIA, America trends technology. I mean, when we got a problem, we think of how much money and what, what technology can I apply? One, one of our last showing up instincts is, I need to throw a lot of human beings at the issue. That's just not how we do it. We throw money, we throw technology. So those are our instincts inside this too. So we're, we're unmatched technologically. We, we find doing human intelligence, I actually think we're good at it, but there, but there are cultural things that make it harder for us to do. When I was doing my description, I think, I think you were my spy, I was, I, was, I was saying, and suborn someone to betray an organization, an organization which believes he deserves his loyalty. That, you know, other than on 24 or Homeland, we Americans kind of, ooh, that's, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable about that. But we do it, and we're, and we're pretty good at it. But there, there's just this cultural pushback. On the other hand, you know, making, the, making somebody go and then pulling the secret out technologically, that just hits our sweet spot. Our sweet spot, that's, that's, that's in our wheelhouse. So that a director of CIA who's responsible for human intelligence knows that he is swimming upstream in the broader American culture. And so he's, he's got to work extra hard to make sure we're good at human, all right? Um, and that actually ties into your last question, what should you go study, right? So is, is, this information is getting dated, but I think it's still relevant. Uh, my last full year as director was 08. We had 160,000 applicants for CIA. And I don't mean that number of clicks on the website. I mean all that invasive, tell me everything, everywhere you've lived and everybody you know, fill in the blank. I mean, very painful, invasive process. We had 160,000 applicants. Now the entrants were much, 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 much smaller, but that's actually a classified number. But it's a really small number. 
the characteristics of the cohort that came in. Average entering age, 29. Okay? And the two most distinguishing characteristics are life experience, obviously, if you're 29. And for about a third of our entrance, life experience was being a GI. That's, that's a, kind of a natural, you know, you've got, you show up for work, you can, you can work in groups, you can handle stress, you can live overseas, it, it proves a lot. So average age 29, life experience, second language. And the more exotic, the better. We'll take you to speak Spanish, it's not disqualifying. We prefer Urdu, okay. Pashto, Farsi, Chinese, Korean. Russian's kind of making a comeback too. I need to make, let you know that, okay? And th those, those are the things. So when I talk to your students, which I did uh, last night uh, to one very bright young woman, um, I said, uh, were you studying any language? And she goes, yes, I'm studying Arabic. Interesting, I didn't mean in the classroom. Have you, are, you are you going abroad? And, and the fact of the matter was, she did. All right, she had spent a semester in Jordan. That's, that's what they're looking for. All right, can you, can, you, can you work in a foreign environment? Can you appreciate a foreign culture? Can, can you live in a second language? Can you adapt? And, and, and so on. Those, those are the things that we're looking for. By the way, that translates to the analytic workforce, too. All right, those are transferable. Okay, yeah. And, and, and that application rate has been consistent. So we, we have had a great blessing from the American people. You're sending your children to us at the really highest quality level. Great talk, General. Thank you. What is the intelligence community doing to uh, address the threat of bioterrorism? Yeah. So when we looked at, at, the, at the weapons of mass destruction Including with um, the terrorist threat, all right? Uh, the, the way, so we, we have to balance how bad could it be with how likely is it to happen? And our racking and stacking for terrorism and mass destruction from more to less likely chem, bio, nuclear contamination nuclear detonation. And that's so, I mean, kind of scientifically, that's where we saw it. So we spent a lot of time uh, trying to make sure, number one, controlling nuclear materials is how you do this one. This stuff you can kind of do in the basement. So you, you really got to work hard. And so when we found, I, I told you, we, we went ruthless after 9-11. All right, we had a targeted killing program. And, and, and obviously, when you do something like that, you know, um, Thomistic, believe it or not, Thomistic theology kicks in about jus ad bellum and jus, you know, justice in war and, and, and so on. And you've got, you've got the principles of necessity, uh, proportionality, humanity, and distinction. And those are, that's traditional Catholic thought, but it's also American legal thought, all right? So when you're, you're doing the math, humanity, I mean, in terms of what, what are the real effects, necessity, what are you trying to do? Distinction, can I make a difference between people I'm mad at and people I'm not mad at? And then finally, proportionality. 
Um, how much evil am I willing to accept as a byproduct of my action based upon the necessity that began it in the first place? And I, I guess I would just suggest to you that if we're looking at somebody who's uh, pouring things from a beaker to a beaker or doing something with, with bugs, um, that affects that calculation. We are, we are far more willing to be aggressive that the necessity of the attack uh, begins to, to move your scale with regard to proportionality. Does that make sense? So, so we, we chase it a lot and we act on it too. General, we have one over here. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, so just to, well, I'll make one comment. Sure. I'm not so convinced about the present interpretation of at least the previous administration on those four principles as a reflection of Thomistic scholarship. But uh, I, leave it, I leave it there, okay? Um, my question for you is, do you think, or let's say, to what extent is there a credibility problem for intelligence agencies with respect to the American citizens? Yeah. And also how people within the intelligence agencies think about how they're going to, it, you know, to whatever extent they think there is a problem, what are they actively doing to resolve that credibility gap in wake of targeted killing, enhanced interrogation, yeah. Edward Snowden, et cetera? Yeah. Thank you. So just, just to briefly reflect, this is unfair because I'm kind of hitting back the ball you just kind of dropped. Uh, they, the Obama guys, you're talking about the Obama administration's decisions on targeted killings? Yeah, they, for someone of my experience, all right, their tolerance of collateral damage, their intolerance of collateral damage was excessive. Okay? And, and, and I'm going I'm to come at this on moral grounds, all right? The more you let bad people who intend to do harm live, for fear of incidental damage, you, you, you run the serious risk that bad people who intend to do harm will do a lot more harm before you finally get around to kill them. And, and so the, the equation to, to make the decision on proportionality is just, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, all right? Uh, it's in my book, all right? So available on Amazon. Um, <laughs> hardback, softback, and Video, uh, dig, digital. So there's a narrative in the, uh, in the book where a meeting's being held with regard to authorizing a targeted killing. All right? And the narrative begins something along the lines of, no, all right, sir, with these two guys, uh, we think they're in the guest house here. And then, then the guy who makes the decision, not further identified, the guy who makes the decision says, how long have you had capture? Which means, how long has the predator been looking at this place? All right? And the answer in the narrative is, well, we, we, we've been here about three hours. Okay. Have you seen any non-combatants during that three-hour period? Which is why you asked the question, how much do you know about the area? We got a woman and two kids over in the, over in the family quarters. These guys are in the guest house. What about that little building there? Um, yeah. we. We've seen people in that building before, but we, we haven't seen anybody there tonight. We just got here three hours ago. There may be people here. All right. Okay. Show me the bug splat. It's the word we use. Show me the bug splat 
uh, with a uh, Hellfire, all right, which is a, a, a missile. It comes off the Predator. It's got about a 14, 13 pound warhead on it, which is, that's pretty small, all right? And, and, and what you get is you get something that looks like a bug splat on your windscreen. You, you get a little reddish area, you get a yellow area, you get a green area. And they're not concentric. It, it has to do with the physics, the angle, the walls, and so on. So you get that. So you, you get a sense of anybody in red, that's lethal. Yellow, probably hurt. Green, probably safe. And then I said, all right, show me the bug splat with the GBU, which is a 500-pound bomb. All right? Bigger area. And I go, all right, show me, show me the Hellfire coming in from this way. In essence, since it's coming in at an angle, you can bring it in in a way that its energy is away from the family quarters. The GBU is more vertical. It spreads out this way. The Hellfire comes in this way. So show me the, show me the bug splat coming this way. Okay, good. I got it. Most of the energy is away from the house. Really good chance nobody gets hurt other than the two people we have in the building. And the decision maker says, all right, go ahead and use the Hellfire just the way you, just the way you lined it up. Okay, and a person gets up from the table, starts running out, and the decision maker says, tell me about these guys again. And he goes through, he goes through who they are. And they're really bad. We have, a, we, have, we have a hell of a time finding them. We know they're there, multiple sources, all right? We know it's them, we know they're there. This is our best shot on these for a long time, and let me, this is what they're doing. At which point the decision maker says, Use the GBU. And then somebody else runs up from the, gets up from the table and starts running out and then says, that, that little house there? Yeah. If military-aged males come out of that house after the detonation, kill them. And off they went. And then about 90 minutes later, the decision maker is briefed. We use the GBU-12. Those guys are dead. Family was pretty shook up. They didn't stay around, they weren't hurt, they ran away, nobody came out of the house, we didn't strike it. Now that's, you vote yes, no, indifferent, makes you happy, makes you not happy, but that's what people you have empowered to act on your behalf for your defense do, and do with the best moral calculus, calculus they can create, understanding that they have also a moral authority, they also have a moral responsibility to defend you. So, anyway, that's how it's done. Any others? Uh, General, uh, that's, uh, you've been extremely generous uh, with your time. Uh, unfortunately, the lease on the room uh, is fast running out, and I want to get our uh, security deposit back. Um, but before we let you go, um, I wanted to, uh, in addition to thanking you for an absolutely superb uh, presentation, present you with a little token uh, of our appreciation for your making the trip all the way outside the beltway here uh, to fly over country. And I can't take credit uh, for this very nice gift. My colleague, uh, Bill Kempf, uh, retired Air Force officer, uh, suggested it. But it's a very nice 
uh, inlaid box with a uh, candle uh, from the grotto in it. And I hope that uh, you'll take this uh, as a token of our appreciation. And now that you know the way to South Bend, uh, that you'll be back uh, many, many times. So thank you very much, General Michael Hayden. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.